0: Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. Most of you are very familiar with Aave and Stani and he needs no introduction. I think Aave is one of the most interesting protocols in crypto as a whole, in terms of their journey from ETHLEND and pivoting into Aave and becoming eventually the largest lending and borrowing protocol across all of crypto. From a governance angle, Aave is one of the most active and engaged communities. There's a lot of protocols out there without many insightful or engaged participants. And I would say Ave really stands out for the, the number of proposals, for the rigor of participation, and for really the sheer number of engaged entities. So excited to dive into all of these with you, Stani. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me here. Pleasure to open up the story of how Aave was born and how we raised to the top and what was very important for us and dive more into the governance as
0: well perfect sequentially let's start with the original maybe a first few years of the ethlend story could you maybe give a quick context on how ethlend started and what drove the decision to transition into ave and convert the token
1: i think it was Somewhere in mid-2016, I noticed that EtherDelta was first a decentralized exchange in a form of order book. It was super exciting technology for me, what you could actually build on top of the EDM by using smart contracts. And what was fascinating back in those days, what I found interesting is that all these cryptographic assets, they're constantly traded and they basically have market capitalization. They have volatility. And it's effectively an asset. So for me, it was fascinating to actually think about what if you take that asset and hold it, but at the same time, you can unlock the collateral value out of the asset. Pretty much similar way as you will do, for example, you have a fully paid house or property and you could actually borrow against that property or your publicly listed shares, for example. And... 2016 was an interesting time because when I was looking at EtherDelta, there really wasn't that much activity. And it was time before crypto Twitter, so everyone pretty much was hanging in Bitcoin forums or the Ethereum subreddit. And there was this interesting discussion why EtherDelta isn't getting much love. And it really started to me to think about how the tech could adopt a bit and what you need to do to actually get this interesting decentralized application dApps, what we call them, to work more and to get more users. I think at that time I was thinking that would be really cool if you could hold a token and get that value unlocked. And I started to plan a proof of concept model for what was then called Eatland. So it was a smart contracts that were forming a marketplace where you could put a collateral into a dedicated smart contract vault set different kinds of terms, what you want to borrow liquidity against. And then on the other side, you also have the ability to do loan offers. So you can actually give your liquidity away at a certain price and then matching those users together to form this collateralized loan obligation. What's funny was back in those days, we had our first test nest in early 2017. During that time, Obviously, there wasn't the term DeFi coin at all yet, but also there wasn't any stable coins in the Ethereum ecosystem. And the only stable coin that existed for quite a while was USDT from Tether, which was on an omni specific chain. So effectively, you will be using these ERC20s as a collateral to borrow ETH or USD pegged ETH. So you borrow with an Oracle price, let's say 100. USD worth of ETH and return it in a later time, 100 USD worth of ETH at the later time. So it was very, very early. And the way we built the system was that our goal was to build as democratic lending protocol. So you could come with any asset and let the market to choose the risks and have the ability to insert the Ethereum address of an asset and see if someone comes and funds that loan. That was 2017, and I think slowly there was people who got interested in what they built. It was very much of MVP and proof of concept, and gave us a lot of recommendations as users, how we could actually improve Eatland, and a community started to surround around on what we were doing during the whole 2017. That was the very, very start of everything.
0: Super helpful, and to your point early on, I mean, DeFi the term wasn't even around. I believe it was the SET protocol guys that came up with the term in maybe 2018 and the rest is history. But what was that transition into Ave? like? I remember, I believe it was in 2020. It was quite a big event and something that took quite a bit of preparation. Doing a token upgrade and using a new set of contracts is a very non-trivial thing. Curious what that looked like and if you could walk me through what those months looked like for us it was
1: quite fascinating because we realized that at that time as the community started to grow that we're not doing any more ethereum landing where the name was deriving from and we're thinking that what if we rebrand into something new where we have a brand underneath where we can actually create a community and different kinds of interesting products and public goods and i think we started the rebranding process in 2019, and it took a while because we wanted to rebrand and launch the, the first version of the, uh, the protocol as well. That took us a bit more time than we expected to build and pretty much take the learnings that we had in e a more peer-to-peer, open, permissionless marketplace for matching liquidity, for collateralized lending. To something more packaged where you have certain type of collaterals and will be governed by the community and when this whole idea of decentralized finance started to go off many of these protocols they really had maybe 20 30 million worth of value locked so it was relatively small space at that time but what we were building we knew that it was very important that we can give the governance ownership to the community and i think one of the things that we were looking into the governance is that what current models exists and what are the differences there so we looked quite closely into the maker model at that time their governance and made a lot of learnings from there we looked into the compounds governance model and what benefits it provided and there was an interesting way to delegate voting power for example we also looked quite a lot into the synthetics model, especially the the economics around synthetics forks and the feedback loops. Something fascinating for us is that we always saw two parts in governance. So we saw a part where you basically have community members that want to decide on different kinds of decisions and vote or delegate their vote to someone else who could actually do that for them as well. You effectively have those governance. But at the same time, we saw and we were visioning that there's going to be also this part of proposals where you will see different kinds of entities coming and creating these proposals. And if you think about how it works in practice, let's say when we compare governance to something like actual government. So the government is the legislative body. The government decides on how they craft different kinds of acts, laws, and then you have actually voting in a parliament. So what was interesting in our thinking was that what if you could also delegate that like a law or let's say a proposal creation, code making ability to someone else, for example, another engineer or an entity that is focusing on building uh, public goods, and then the same person could actually delegate also the voting power to someone else. So this was interesting because it takes away the monopoly that you have in the making of those rules and proposing them for voting to anyone. And you can actually then decide that maybe I want to delegate my proposition power to someone else delegating my voting power. And I think that was... Fundamentally, something that we wanted to do, and it's exercised still today as well. So you see users delegating to, let's say, Gauntlet or Lama in terms of creating proposals, but then might be delegating their actual voting power to a blockchain association or even keeping them to themselves. So that was, I would say, a behavioral difference that we wanted to introduce. And then we introduced tiered governance. So. Normally, you have the same voting requirements on all the proposals. And we actually wanted to create the governance system in a way where there's level one, which means that any proposal that actually affects the protocol itself, different kinds of risk parameters, might be interest rate curves, asset listings, will be in that level one. That's lower quorum to be achieved. And then you have level two. So the level two basically is that if you want to make fundamental changes to the whole system, including, for example, the token dynamics, the issuance, for example, you have to go to a very high quorum, and that's the level two governance. And the reason we wanted to do that, which comes back to the migration point that you mentioned from Lend token to Ava token, was actually that... We understood from that migration that we never want to put the community or suggest them to have another migration process because it's such a big effort. But if there's some innovation on that token level or a token standard, you can easily upgrade in the future once you have that wide quorum mandate from the community. And that was our twist there that we wanted to ensure that happens so we can innovate on that level. Last thing I want to point out is that how closely the actual version one of the Avi protocol and the governance work are together. So we released the protocol itself and followed right away with the governance model and progressively decentralized to the community. So they went quite hand in hand back in those days.
0: It's clear that you guys put a lot of time and effort, I think, into designing governance and implementing it. Why spend all this time? If you just look at crypto Twitter a lot of people are like oh DAO governance is a joke nothing happens why do people care about it but from your perspective why is it important
1: the innovation part for us the importance there actually was to take what we have and move the space forward bringing something that solves different things for the community and i think the perspective that governance doesn't work is interesting because It's very easy to say at the same time, but also because governance requires a lot of work. It's very easy and fast to innovate when you can build yourself new pieces or upgrades into a protocol, make changes with a small, like a dictatorship, small team. But then when you're actually building something like public goods, and if you follow the ethos and ideology that some of these protocols will become adopted by the main population let's say if we compare it to something like the internet technology so it started very small like a nerdy way and then expanded into a bit more into businesses and then eventually all across the globe currently we have 5 billion users online and almost equal amount of users that are using social media and other applications, and internet. So we are using protocols like IP, HTTP, without actually even caring about it because the adoption is so wide. So the big differences with public goods is that the way we build the internet is conceptually decentralized. With this same protocol, anyone can plug in, run a server. There's a bunch of centralized elements in the infrastructure, ISPs, the internet service providers. Somehow you need to connect the wires, and then the application layer. That's where a lot of the centralization lies at the moment. And many of the financial networks we are operating as well are pretty much centralized. If you're thinking that we're going to create protocols as public good, the idea also is that these protocols, they need to be governed by the people, meaning the small communities that care about what the community stands for, and what they want to achieve together. And I think that's where the value is. If we want to have something very public and something that is accessible by everyone. And I personally believe that the Aave Protocol, taking a few steps away from the DeFi world and looking at what we actually achieved, is that there's practically a global, borderless, transparent financial market which gives everyone the same equal opportunity to the same rights, the yield. When you create something like this, you really have to ensure that it can be then governed by those users. And governance is hard because it's another additional process. And also it's about opinions and a consensus satisfying everyone to progress. And it's definitely burdensome and governance also is designed to fail as well because those failures help to then find how we can actually do better in the future and i have to give a lot of credit actually to MakerDAO governance because it's one of those og governances which is used as an example where things might be working or there's a lot of drama going on but also it's constantly moving forward and if there is activity, it means that people care about the protocol. And I think that's what's happening the Aave protocol. People are caring about it. And if they think something doesn't work, they're actively loud about it. Let's say that someone says that BFI or governance in general doesn't work, and they state the challenges. And then it's up to the community to actually go and fix those issues as well and have progression.
0: It's clear that Aave has very active governance there's a huge amount of discussion and proposals. Some of it is due to, I think, the thought an initial design of governance in the sense the community is responsible for a lot. There's delegation, there's tiered governance. It's not just due to the design. A new protocol can fork Ave governance tomorrow and they'll have 1% of the activity and it might not grow over time. So aside from the initial design, what do you think was the main reason or reasons that governance—it's become so active. Was it like an intentional thing? Did you guys put a lot of effort into it? Do you think here?
1: Initially, we put a lot
0: of effort into kickstarting the governance
1: after the ABIT version one protocol. What became obvious to us is that DeFi is growing, and so are these protocols. And we really don't want to have oversight how basically the protocol is going to be governed. And I think we put in I think roughly six months of work, of morning to evening, nights as well in some cases, to actually create a governance model that has a positive feedback loop. And when you look into the arbonomics, what happens there is that there's also so-called safety module, and ideally it covers and backstops the risk of the arbi protocol in case of excess debt. So the way the lending protocols work is that they have collateralization and set risk parameters that should avoid that collateralization, but also competitive enough that basically it allows the community to take risk and the users to basically generate yield against that. So Tarun from Gauntlet actually calls it the security budget. So how much the community is willing to take risk for the yield to take more market share. Now the other community is pretty. I would say conservative, given that how many assets there are in the market. And that has been very valuable in the beginning of the protocol because the Aave community were listing assets that were new to that household DeFi collaterals with more conservative risk parameters. And this gave access to new communities, Chainlink, for example, and many of the DeFi assets as well and created more tighter community around the Aave ecosystem and i think after we did that work of getting that progressive decentralization where we're actually giving the keys away to the community and the moment that it was governed by the community that's the most exciting feeling you have because from that point what happens is that as a team you no longer can go and change anything and you celebrate that and from that point, if you are concerned about something or you have an improvement idea, you have to go to this public governance forum and actually explain your idea and get support of other people the same way as all the other contributors. And at that case, I like to always have a test where, for example, when you measure how decentralized is your community, if you can take the team that initially was part of creating the actual protocol a way will the protocol still work from risk perspective and also from development update perspective. And when you look at the other community today, for example, there's software engineers paid directly by the DAO entities that are servicing to build, they have a roadmap. There's also two different risk contributors at the moment, Chaos Labs and also Gauntlet, and both of them are actively participating so that tells us that it's not only about decentralization on the fact who can vote but the also work that goes into the protocol and i think the biggest challenge when it comes to forks is that there hasn't been that many successful forks in defi in general but one of interesting one with the the sushi swap from uniswap but i personally think the only utility for sushi swap was force Uniswap to have a token. And and since that happened, swap never came back from it is today. So forks the thing is you can fork the code, but it's harder to fork the whole consensus of the community. And forks are important. So this is what distinguishes us decentralized finance from traditional finance or how businesses are set up today. So you really don't have that infrastructure as a mode. Instead what you really have to do is you have to really listen to the community members and have a wide consensus on things that are happening across the ecosystem. In that case, it means that because there's the fork of risk, you really need to think of all the voices within the community and make the best decision. Because other than that, if that doesn't work, you have always a risk that the community will split into two or even multiple pieces. But then the actual real work in when and how to make the governance work is the people who come and actively contribute and create ideas and share the news and contribute. That's the hardest part. So the hardest part isn't designing, in my opinion, and kickstarting the governance. The hardest part is how you ensure that people care and contribute and participate. And that's where the DeFi is today with governance.
0: The level of risk discussions and overall activity is really high and impressive. People check each other's work, people have noticed mistakes, people push back, and it's clear that people care. I'm curious, there's obviously a few different vendors helping the Ave protocol, especially around risk. There's been some debates and discussion around like, okay, which one do we go with? What are the KPIs? How do you think about having multiple vendors and this public process around vendor selection.
1: I do believe that a lot of these DAOs they will have to choose vendors because of the fact that they can't do everything and it's very hard to organize work through a DAO. Avidal was one of the earliest where a lot of the work was delegated to service providers from development to risk management to treasury management. And that's interesting because I believe that the other protocol and the DAO is one of the most efficient DAOs in terms of getting things done and pushing out innovation ongoing basis. But I see more of a challenge in the procurement of how do you negotiate the best value for the DAO. And all these service providers, I have to say that they're very early, the same way as we are early in the whole DeFi community and what we're doing. So, There's really not super much comparison. What are the different pricings? What's fair? And also what different kinds of workloads these different entities should be doing. So it's still very early. So one of the challenges, I think all these DAOs are using service providers is how do you negotiate the best price for the DAO? And that really isn't, big of a process because anyone can go and put a proposal and if there isn't much competition what happens is then if it's development risk the community might appreciate it and they will go with that but we have starting to see more contributors and what i think where things should move towards is a tender system where the dao describes carefully what they want to get done what are the conditions and requirements and then put that as an offer publicly. And then you will have a bidding competition where all these service providers are bidding, maybe in a sealed way to ZK, and eventually also sharing supportive documentation. And then maybe there is some sort of procurement council that the actual job is delegated to select one of the service providers, or you can do completely publicly and let the DAO members to decide. But that's where I think things has to go because that creates that diligent sound process around how do you contract service
0: providers within the DAO? Totally makes sense. I think we're still in the very nascent stages of all this of beta DAO generally, it's probably two to three years old as a vertical. It's clear that it is a very different process in terms of the sales cycle, in terms of the product, in terms of the communication compared to traditional B2B. I think in the past two weeks, there was an attack on Ave by this guy, Abraham Eisenberg. He's attacked other protocols like Solon before and left them hundreds of millions of dollars in the hole. Ave came out pretty well, only with a bad debt of a million and a half. And I believe the attacker lost much more than that. So I think all things considered it's a good outcome. But curious behind the scenes what did it look like? Was there like a war room? What did that week look like?
1: It's definitely been interesting weeks especially because overall when we look at the whole state of the liquidity in crypto market it has been decreasing for quite a while now and especially the past 6 months has been quite a decrease. And we've seen entities in Centralized lending companies, BlockFi, like also we've seen Celsius, for example, and even hedge funds like Trial row capital going bust because of what's been happening in the market. So, something that's been happening in the Aave community for the past months also is that the risk providers have been reviewing different risk parameters, what is actually currently provided by what are currently set in the different reserves, with different assets, loan-to-value ratios, correlation thresholds, also supply caps and borrow caps, and effectively be mitigating those conditions according to the market. And what's fascinating here is that as a community, you have to come together and decide based on, let's say, someone's recommendation could be gone to Chaos Labs, that what are the parameters that the community wants to just subscribe to retain a market share, expand market share or decrease a market share because it affects the yield and interest rate. So what is the optimal risk and the security budget that you want to subscribe to? And that's something that has been happening ongoing basis. But what we've seen recently is that instead of by month liquidity, is drying or conditions are changing, it went to weeks and then it went to that things are changing within a couple of days, periodically. And when you look at the dried liquidity, it also means that you might have scenarios where you have people that want to take that advantage and do a trade, for example, where they're leveraging some market opportunity, whether it's ethical or not, for example. In this case, what happened is that there's a big market fluctuation on a particular asset. And obviously, that led to liquidations where pretty much most of the debt was liquidated. So, the way the Avi protocol works is that the liquidation network was decentralized. You have these agents coming and buying the collateral, which was USDC at this point, against CRV and selling it for CRV to repay that debt position against a reward. And there was two incidents of liquidations where there was the first wave and that was very successful, a bigger amount of liquidation and the second wave. And obviously when this happens and you start to see price movements, inflows on outflows from the other protocol, the alarms and messages start to actually ring in our team, basically. So there's a war room, people are there and we're using different kinds of tools to understand what are various different next steps or paths. But most of the actual work happens in the community. So in terms of the liquidations, for example, the protocol works as designed. And as you mentioned, there was a small amount of excess depth, I think less than 0.1% or something in terms of the protocol TVL that ended up being one Million that's basically wasn't liquidated, which is covered. So the community is voting to cover it through the income revenue that comes from the other protocol from that lending activity. Effectively, there's not much you can actually do, obviously, because the risk parameter work happens in the community and that's where the work starts. But obviously, what's, what's interesting is that everyone was watching this situation from everywhere in the world and i think this is the exactly why finance should be decentralized finance because anyone can audit what's happening every single transaction every second create better tools for example there's different kinds of ways to quantify the risk in the other protocol gandlin has done interesting market risk uh, liquidity risk research Block Analytica has done their tools, for example, on measuring the changes, how the changes in asset valuations cause liquidations. So these are all possible because we have this public computable data available to any genius out there. The whole world was focusing, and when the incident was over, I think it was also a very relieved moment, not because for the sake of the other protocol, but for the sake of Everyone was actually getting the last information on what was happening, and DeFi did well. I think this is a good example where the community has been able to be successful. Yes, there's some bad debt, for example, left there, but the protocol and the community has subscribed into a specific security budget and to take specific amount of risk. And I personally think even those risk parameters could be even more conservative because liquidity changes quickly. So the risk parameters has to change dynamically according to what is happening. And I think a lot of things are better in the other version tree, which has been deployed in all the other markets because you can set supply caps and debt caps, which is very helpful. But also you can list assets in complete isolation mode and have that isolated risk as well. But also there's one super exciting feature called the risk admin. So you can delegate between certain threshold, for example, or fully, the risk parameters to an entity so you can change them on fly if you want to. And that's very powerful to dynamically respond to quickly changing risk conditions. That is why that's going to be the future path for the Aave community to manage risk in a more robust way.
0: I think in a bear market, when prices are going down, when people are getting margin called and blown up, that's when proper risk management really shines through. It's clear that a lot of the centralized lenders did not do it properly. And as a result, the centralized crypto credit landscape is, you would know better than me, but it's probably, we're back to like 2018, maybe. I think at that time, Genesis was originating tens of millions of dollars a month, and by The peak of the bull market last year, they were doing billions of dollars a month. So, this is where proper risk management, and especially with DeFi protocols that have weathered it well, that's when the market's really available. So, excited for you guys to win a lot of that market share. There's no one else. And I think it's very valuable. Personally, for me,
1: it means a lot because when eatland was started it was the first concept of using crypto as a collateral and basically also earning outside of the more established lending that happens in exchanges against different kinds of short for example positions and market making so what i think was valuable back in those days in 2016 2017 is that i had a fundamental thinking of Should I continue building this on top of a smart contract Infrastructure, at that time, very hard to build, requires a lot of resources of understanding of a system that is very new. Ethereum was very new. Building these interest applications were very new. Governance barely existed. There was just recently the DAO hack, for example. For me, there was two paths. One is to continue the post-MVP that we continue building on a smart contract infrastructure or we do a more centralized approach where this could be more scalable and we decided to stick on that decentralized approach and building on smart contracts 2017-18 was quite hard because you started to see a lot of businesses coming i think there was salt landing there was BlockFi coming as well later celsius genesis as well And they all reported enormous numbers in terms of deposits and user activity. And there was a lot of making fun about DeFi, how hard it is, how difficult it is. People don't want to borrow stable coins. They want to borrow cash. And we were super stubborn about it in terms of we believe in decentralization and that the future of internet will be running on smart contracts. So why not just keep the path? And eventually, as the systems evolved more, it became the other protocol, the version one to version two and three. It just evolved. And the user experience today, for example, is simple. So when people say DeFi is hard, it actually isn't. You click for a deposit or a swap. Even Metamask and writing seats down isn't really that hard compared to, for example, what it takes you to get a driving license, to drive a car and learn to drive, or for example, going to a bank, filling a lot of forms, and then getting access to an internet bank and learning how the hell you're going to use it as well. So we're problematizing, but at the same time, we're getting better in terms of user experience and adoption. And I think what's valuable about the centralized approach was it's really showcased how much risk these entities are taking. But the problem was that you do, you couldn't see what you were subscribing to. There were black boxes. And in some ways, traditional finance and Wall Street is still that way. So you obviously have the public financials, periodically, reportings as well. But you don't really have the full exposure, the public exposure, the whole financial state on what is happening. even with privacy you don't know how much these different banks are leveraged against one another on a, every single day on a, every single moment on every single trade and i think to have a sound financial system you have to do that and the way you achieve it is to a public good because if the ship is sailing to the wrong direction the community can actually step in and say hey this is not the direction of our ethos and what we stand for. So we have to correct our sale and path. And I think that's what's super valuable for me the learnings so of when centralized lenders went down, why DeFi is important, and why I've personally been very vocal about it, especially with FDX happening, that why we need DeFi now more than
0: ever. That is one of the biggest lessons, I think, for anyone using or working in DeFi. It's true that it's much more difficult to bootstrap compared to centralized alternatives. It's the amount of infrastructure and the onboarding is harder. When a protocol is young, it's hard for institutions to put a lot of money in or whales even compared to an easy centralized platform. But the bet on DeFi is really that over the long run, there are no incentives and it's harder to misuse customer funds, to use poor risk management. That's really the bet you're making. I think another sector that you guys don't touch, but is similar, it's derivatives, options. DeFi derivatives and options compared to centralized alternatives are minuscule today. And I see a lot of discourse, a lot of people on crypto Twitter making fun of it or criticizing it. And there's probably some design decisions that DeFi can improve on there's a lot of products and services that exchanges like Binance can, that other DeFi alternatives don't. But I think people underestimate how quickly that can change one or two massive events, one or two catalysts, and it can change very quickly. So I think that's a really important point.
1: Options is interesting because with that DeFi execution transparency, you can actually ensure that all the options are covered as well. So you don't have naked shorts, for example. So I think the decisions around the models that DeFi might be using isn't super optimized. Even if you think about automated market makers, plain spot trading, it is clear that that's not the most efficient way to trade and you can get arbitraged and you have this concept of impermanent loss. But it's a way to introduce more retail liquidity, productizing market making and creating liquidity around. Value that might not be attractive enough for fully professional trading, for example. And I think what's interesting about DeFi is that the liquidity is there. If you have liquidity across the AMMs or lending protocols, you can quantify how it moves as well. So in centralized exchanges, the order books they might disappear, but also we had the incident of Black Thursday, for example where liquidators during liquidating a lot of positions in decentralized finance, including MakerDAO. Many of these liquidators they couldn't recycle their capital. Exchanges the withdrawals weren't working. For example, even during the CRV incident, the withdrawal stopped working in Binance as well. So, made for CRV. So maybe more difficult. It just showcases that the system of centralized finance there's unexpected conditions there. First. A smart project based system, you can see all the rules. So you have more certainty what will happen with different financial transactions. So I think in some cases, many of these protocols as a public good, they might not always be the most optimized but they still carry a lot of value for the ecosystem.
0: One other question. I think a lot of people have been talking about institutions and crypto since 2016. And it's clear that in the past two years, they have begun interacting in a real way as LPs and venture funds, as users of DeFi protocols. Companies like Fireblocks have helped accelerate that. Things like Aave are, are a great example. But I think it's also, to be realistic, there's still a lot of institutions that aren't able to participate. And maybe some of them have been scared off by recent events. So where do you think we're at? And I think... Related to this question is a lot of people think that crypto native stuff has limited scalability, and they're probably right. If MakerDAO wants to scale, integrating RWA is really important. Stablecoins are the first example of that, and it's been huge. What is your stance on RWA's overall? How does Aave go from a few billion in collateral to hundreds of billions? I talked to Rune earlier, probably a few months ago. I think his stance is RDBs are a necessary evil for now, but long-term he wants to find a path to make them unnecessary. So curious where you pan out.
1: I definitely understand where Rune is coming from because there's just limited amount of value you can transact on chain at this point. But there's a lot of value that is actually existing outside of the blockchain system. And to some extent, It's very hard to sometimes put a distinction what is actually real-world off-chain assets, for example, compared to what is native. So for example, Ethereum ether is technically native asset there on Ethereum, but the actual consumption, the gas prices, depends on the people who are using the outside element, outside of the system. With the real-world assets, let's say, USDC, that's more clear. You have funds at a bank account or in some instruments and then you have an on chain representation of that value. And either in the same time can be representation of the value of people and the bots consuming the system. So I personally am not super worried about the idea of getting rid of real world assets or than being an issue somehow, because it's more of a question of centralization, censorship, so those things are actually more important topics. So let's say that UCT is an issue because there's element of centralization and censorship, and to be honest, it's just boils down to censorship. Because if you think about it, if asset is decentralized enough, you might not have that censorship issue. And I think maybe. With real world assets, what is interesting is that if we can solve some of the pain points of censorship and centralization, and maybe have some sort of decentralized custody, we will have less of a challenge of how we think about real world assets. And the fact is that censorship is very easy to achieve on an off-chain economy, obviously, because that's an economy that has matured enough to see different kinds of issues and the way to solve issues is in many cases, for example, regulation, especially when you look at finance. But I like the idea of actually expanding over a period of time, creating more and more technically native assets within the blockchain and being more reliant on them and being less reliant on the assets that are off chain and just represent value on chain. So. I definitely agree that there has to be a lot of reliance because the most of the value is outside of the blockchain system. And down the line, once that value in the system grows even more, you can be less reliant on off-chain assets. So I do believe that now it's an interesting time to experiment, but down the line, I would love to see more native economy emerging on chain.
0: Totally makes sense. Sounds like RWAs and ways to integrate and scale them safely and in a healthy way, that's one of the largest priorities for Ave as a whole. If you had to pick one or two other things you're most excited about in terms of innovations for Ave, what would they be? Would it be V3? Would it be the stablecoin? Maybe you could talk about Lens, but if you had to pick like one or two things you're most excited about over the next 12 months... What would they be?
1: The past year, I've been extremely excited about the RVV3 because of the idea of not just the risk mitigation that you actually have with the supply and borrow caps and also the isolated mode, but the capital efficiency that it brings. For example, you have this high efficiency mode where you can actually borrow an asset that is correlating the same way in its value against another asset. So you can use USDC as a collateral to borrow, for example, euros or pounds. And that's an interesting use case for FX trading, which is the biggest financial trading activity. And also the capital efficiency that derives from this idea of portals. Now portals is effectively a way to get registered within the other protocol, true obviously from the DAO. And being able to get credit to mint and burn unbacked A tokens. This is very useful, for example, for bridges that want to make instant transfers between let's say Ethereum and Polygon or Optimism by simply taking a deposit on, let's say, on the mainnet Ethereum, or deposit might be already in that protocol there and instantly minting the equal amount of tokens on let's say optimism and letting the user to withdraw and then moving through a bridge and packing them later, that difference, which brings a lot of efficiency. So V3 is incredible. It's already across multiple networks and there's going to be an upgrade from V2 to V3, actually to V3.01, that's the latest version. So there's going to be a couple of smaller improvements. But one thing I'm super excited now going forward is the Go stablecoin, and the reason for that is, overcollateralized stablecoins like what Go is, isn't a new concept. We do have innovation that makes Go more attractive, specifically because you can earn on your collateral in Aave while you're minting Go, so it's a more capital-efficient way to mint the stablecoin, and specifically for the Staked Aave token holders who are backstopping the risk of the protocol. They can mint GO at a discounted rate and basically arbitrage the opportunities across decentralized finance. But the reason I'm more excited than the pure innovation and technicalities is that where GO is taking its future. So I think decentralized finance has proven itself. It's a very efficient transparent economy, but we're still operating through the internet where we're using payment networks that are backed by the traditional finance fintechs. And I think because of the fact that we have layer twos now, we have optimism, we have Arbitrum. that is even Polygon, the transaction fees are relatively low. So what we can actually do that we couldn't do a couple of years ago is that we can now start making payments with a very low transaction fees across layer twos these roll-ups basically and this means that first time ever it makes now sense to start pushing stable coins to become the internet money and also to solve problems in real world and the reason it's important is effectively there is five billion internet users at this point and the macro economy now we have inflation up to 10%, even more across Europe. The US has a big inflation. Countries like Argentina, the inflation is 100% almost, meaning that whatever you get paid for your work, if you wait a year, half of the purchasing power. That's how bad, not just the inflation itself, but showing that if we are relying upon a financial system that is based by communities, transparent, open, Permissionless, we have better foundations to build better finance actually, and have that innovation that could reduce inflation or could reduce the issues that we have in online payments where card providers are charging 2 to 3% of the internet merchants and shopkeepers. So I'm most excited about not just the go, but the potential where stablecoins could take us in the future. Regarding the social. I think that's another big thing because Aave as a team we built access. So with the Aave protocol we built access to finance global transparent markets, and with Lens Protocol we are building access to your ownership of your social profile. So we all have social relationships, and now for the past couple of decades we have these relationships online. So we transact in relationships in bigger platforms, but we don't have the ownership. So our followers are, for example, in Twitter or Reddit, but if you're not aligned with Twitter, for example, you can't just take your follower base and leave the platform. We're using blockchain to secure your profile, your follower base, and the ability to publish content to your audience. And effectively changing the dynamics that the users have the power now and the applications and algorithms have to be built around the users and the users have the choice to select those experiences that are reflecting their values the most and because everything is on the same ecosystem you can start building web3 social and DeFi, and interact govern and it becomes that native economy that we were talking about where we don't need to rely on centralized entities, but actually, or off-chain assets, because we're building this economy that is actually living on chain. And that's going to be a
0: big improvement. It'll be exciting to see how the stablecoin landscape changes over the next two years. I think every market cycle, the tides are turning two, three years ago, USDC. I don't even think there was a billion circulating. I think Tether was already in the tens of billions. and look at it today where it's much closer. Excited to see where the stable coin landscape pans out over the next two, three years. You also touched on one category that Ave has executed really aggressively is cross-chain, other chains, uh, the L2s. What's been the thinking there? How do you guys decide where to deploy?
1: That's an interesting question because we as a team, we don't really make decisions. So It's effectively the governance, but the proposals are actually coming from the community members of those networks. So part of the success for Aave has been this cross-chain component. There was a lot of activity in Polygon in terms of the NFT ecosystem. The gaming ecosystem was very early there, but DeFi wasn't. So there was some interesting forks at that time of different DeFi protocols, but there wasn't anything actually valuable. And Avi protocol was the first ones of the bigger protocols to be deployed there, same for Avalanche, and then continued with the other networks and layer twos. What's fascinating here is that enabled to get more wider user base. And quite a long time, the user base in the Polygon market was way more bigger than the Ethereum mainnet market. Which is fascinating also that I would say maybe the deposit size in polygon market were hundreds of dollars in average compared to thousands that we had in the main market. So that was a big surprise. And I think that was quite interesting strategy. So it's usually decided by the governance. There's alignment within the community that these new markets are actually very beneficial. Obviously, the challenge is the bridging different assets. That's why I'm more firm believer in L2s than one layer one to another
0: layer one bridging. Bridges are one of the largest honeypots in crypto and I think are obviously a critical piece of infrastructure, but also a scary one. When I look at Ave compared to other networks, it's just available on so many, I think there's like seven or eight different markets in terms of. Chains are all too supportive. Other ecosystems just can't keep up. How is the execution speed so fast?
1: With the version tree, it's quite easy to deploy with very conservative risk parameters. So that has been helpful. But end of the day, the RWA DAO is quite interesting DAO. So there's a lot of different kinds of stakeholders, community members that can come together, vote, and execute. And it really reminds me this idea of. Consent protocol where you basically don't necessarily have like a very wide consensus, but you see a proposal, people are happy. You don't have a better proposal. You just consent to the idea. Or if you don't, you create a better proposal. And I think that's an interesting model because that helps to actually get more execution. And you still have the room to make better decision making or better decisions by. Someone has a better idea they can come and create. Obviously, it's a DAO and there's a consensus, but I just feel that the community is pushing towards the same alignment and path, which has been very helpful.
0: What's your sense of how DeFi over the next few years will evolve? I'll give you my prognosis from afar and I'm just curious your reaction. I think it's clear that a handful of protocols have real moats due to various reasons. Each protocol, let's say you guys, Uniswap, MakerDAO, maybe you could put Lido in there. They started off in a very specialized place, offering one vertical and using that as a launch pad and as a gateway into many other things. And I think that is the right strategy. And curious if you think there will be other verticals that are valuable that people use Will it be existing protocols that win that? I'm curious how you think about the meta game.
1: That's interesting because I really think about a lot of the tech probably very similar across all the communities. Of a version tree, it's really hard to create a version four because there's not much things you can actually innovate on that level besides incremental improvements. And end of the day, all these protocols they should look a bit like similar in terms of the features. But what's going to be radically different is what the community stands for and then what's the risk appetite. That's going to be radically different. So you belong to other community because you believe in the mission, you're excited about where the protocol could actually go in the community, but also you want to subscribe to that risk or adoption. Maybe the other community it's gonna be more excited about reducing carbon footprint, having green collaterals or something similar. Maybe someone is building a yield aggregator where in the future you get more points when let's say the Aave protocol is reducing more carbon and liquidity moves towards more to Aave because of that reason or some other protocols. So, or the idea is to basically not just create impact but create more adoption over internet for. Stable coins. So I think these different communities' tech might look very similar, and I think it's fine. When you look at exchanges, they're pretty much the same. Coinbase, Kraken, Binance, they have their own products, but they have key core components that are very similar, and then additional products. Coinbase is an amazing example because they have incredible innovation and there's a lot of people at Coinbase and they're able to create and support DeFi as well and do incredible things. is amazing and I think it's the ethos that you are supporting. And I don't see it as competition. I mainly see it as a bit of diversification but also about identity. Where do you want to belong and where do you want to contribute to than anything else? So I could definitely see that at some point the other community might have some sort of AMM as well, that could actually benefit their community and tweaked for the community preferences. So I think that that's the future where we want to be part of it. And maybe I think about DAOs a bit more in a way where if these protocols are going to be adopted the same way as we've been adopting internet, other protocol becomes something like the IP protocol or some payment protocol. What's gonna be interesting is that some of these DAOs might become bigger than some of the nations. What's fascinating there is that these DAOs, they can actually not only create spin-off DAOs, but you can allocate resources to fix a problem in a specific region. It might be poverty or might be something else. So that's gonna be super exciting. And maybe this plays a bit with the idea of network states. So maybe some of the bigger DAOs are the first network states where everyone participates governing and you might have an Aave identity. Maybe there will be a city somewhere with their own Raves and Lensfest, who knows, but it's just fascinating to think where things could move towards.
0: Stani, this has been a fascinating conversation. Appreciate you sharing your thoughts around governance, around Aave's and ETHLEN's journey over the past few years. You guys. A fascinating protocol that has had a bit of an unconventional path, but very unique one. So appreciate you digging into some of that. And thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you so much, Derek, for having me here. It was exciting to chat.
0: Awesome. Thank you.